Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warriors. Welcome back. If you're new here, welcome for the first time. But thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That is your time. Today's clean energy champion is Sandhya Ganapati. Chief Executive for EDP Renewables North America, the fourth largest renewable energy producer in the world. She joined EDPR back a decade ago in 2012 as head of investments for M&A in North America. And today we get a chance to look at her journey, not only up to getting to EDPR, but ascending into the role as CEO for North America. Some of the things that have been instrumental in her growth as a clean energy executive and the way that she thinks about cultivating what she calls domestic talent and the process of career transition. Sandia and I cover a wide gamut of experiences from her time as a little girl in India to the very first time she touched snow here in America. It's a fantastic journey and an insightful one if you're interested at all in how the global investment class of renewable infrastructure works and how it's growing, where it's going and how energy storage and hydrogen, other assets play a role. I hope you're subscribed to the show as that will ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. You can always check out more than 500 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we're going to have such a fun conversation. It's always a true pleasure when the Suncast stage is graced by a real power player. And we'll unpack what that looks like in real form today in the conversation with Sandhya Ganapati, as I introduced a few minutes ago. She's the CEO of North America for EDPR, EDP Renewables, and she has a remarkable story. As we navigate this discussion today, I think that you'll get a sense of a person who has constantly throughout her career sought a level of ambition that she could pull herself up to and someone who has always pushed herself into new environments and brought along others in her inner pathway. Sandia. It's been a long time coming, and I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to introduce you to the Suncast Tribe. Welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, I'm super, super happy and delighted to connect with your audience. As a little girl growing up in India, you dreamed of achieving professional status. And my understanding is you grew up in a community that has quite a connection from an intercultural and international perspective. Can you tell us a bit about? the part of India that you grew up in and how that influenced your view of the world and what you thought you might someday become from a career perspective? So I grew up in a very small city called Cochin. Uh, it's the southernmost state. Uh, it, it's part of the southernmost state of Kerala, so it's very coastal. And, uh, and frankly, now I'm based in Houston. It's not as humid as this, but, uh, but relatively the temperature, the weather is almost the same. That is a place where, you know, the Western world actually discovered India. Uh, wow. And so the Portuguese uh, Vasco da Gama, he landed uh, in, my, uh, in my state, uh, very near my hometown. Mm -hmm. and, and so growing up, uh, obviously, there was a lot of influence. And this you will find in different parts of India. There is always influence of the West. There is influence of the Persians. And so um, growing up, it was very, as you rightly put, it was very intercultural. I went to a Catholic school, um, and so that's, uh, you know, I had that, that perspective as well. And so 
this makes one much more uh, sort of global, right? Yeah. I mean, you ha you understand people from different perspectives. You can understand it's not, life is not always black and white for me. It's always shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And from there, uh, you know, uh, obviously the journey started. Of course, I, you, you talked about ambitions. I think many of us have ambitions when, when we were, when we are small. I had, you know, my baby steps and, uh, and really glad, you know, where things eventually landed. Why did you choose the path of accounting as a professional career track? <laughs> Yeah, simply to tell you the truth, my, my dad is an accountant. Mm. My sister is an accountant. So it's a family full of, my uncle is an accountant, is a family of accountants. But honestly, you know, growing up, my mother wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> and at some point of time, I wanted to be a teacher. And and then, you know, you know, I think when, uh, when I got into high school, I loved economics. And so naturally, um, you know, when I went to university, I took, you know, I didn't specialize in accounting. I took a combination of economics, business, accounting, yeah. and law. And, and I think that was a great combination for my personality. Mm -hmm. So do I have regrets of not being a doctor? Yes, I could have contributed to the world in a different way, but, but I, think, uh, I think it's fine. Sandhya, as, a, as an accountant, I'd love to hear from your perspective, if there's anything particularly unique about your education that you feel like formed a foundational aspect that led you through the remainder of your career or that gave you really a pillar of strength that you've utilized in other areas of your work? So I'm a chartered accountant from India and uh, the chartered accountancy course in India is, is not uh, solely focused on accounting, which is a beauty. Um, there is so much of taxation that we study. There is a lot of auditing. So from a diligence perspective, there is a lot of law. And, and personally, my affinity was always towards law, whether it's corporate law, whether it is, you know, whether it's when you talk about different statutes that we had to cover during chartered accountancy yeah. and all of that, in a way, it helped me uh, start my career. I started as a banker. So that background of looking at things from a balance sheet perspective, from a taxation perspective, from a contractual perspective, which is a legal aspect, it definitely had, I think it gave me a natural edge over many others who did not have the benefit of similar training or similar academic background. How interesting. Sure. The law background allows you to really think about argument, right? And argument in the classic sense, having a yeah. defense for a reasoning or a line of rationale, which is incredibly important in negotiating. I've heard you are a self-described deal junkie. Do you remember the first time you really felt that adrenaline of the deal? Yeah, so... Many, many years ago, it doesn't mean to say that I'm too old, but <laughs> almost 21 years back uh, when I started my career, I worked for a, a very fantastic uh, institution in India called ICICI. And uh, at that time, I was part of the team which was doing a lot of securitization work in India, which was a very young market. You know, the market is still, was still in its infancy as it relates to securitization and bonds, corporate bonds. And I still remember when we launched the first time online bidding for those bonds. And I had a, a set of clients who, you know, I had to call and ask, you know, are you going to bid and make sure that they had all the information into bid into it. And I still remember there was this one, you know, sort of state owned entity. I literally took my laptop and went there because I, I was not quite sure whether their connection, their connectivity was, will be good enough. So I literally took my laptop and went there and sat with a fund manager and said, you know, I'm going to provide you all the equipment that you need in order to bid. And I don't want you to not bid because of lack of infrastructure. And when I think about that, you know, me doing that as a 21 year old, and I'm not saying that I did it and many others did not do it. And that was purely because I just loved my deals. I still love my deals. And I think after completing, you know, a deal take, depending, depending upon what kind of deal you're doing, a deal naturally takes somewhere between three months to nine months, sometimes a year. And when you finish a deal, there is that 60 seconds of absolute bliss. And I think I've always chased those 60 seconds of absolute bliss in my life. And so I, I truly, truly believe that I'm a deal junkie. Growing up in accounting household, did you have a sense that you sort of would always stay in India and follow the accounting track? Or, or at what point did you internally affirm, I want to leave and go abroad and study somewhere else and, and maybe even depart from this accounting track? 
So when I finished my chartered accountancy and, uh, you know, I did it through a fast track program, which, you know, which is there in India, if, if you're able to manage that. And so I was 21. And then I had a choice. And not only me, many people do that. So, yeah. so I had a choice at that time to either get into banking. And this was based on the number of, you know, sort of campus offers that you that I got, either get into banking or get into auditing. So any of the big four you think of, yeah. you know, the, the sort of auditing firm. So I, I don't know. At some point, and I, I was actually contemplating, it took almost a good two months to decide which way I wanted mm. to go. But at some point, I thought that if I'm doing banking, I could be much more complete in the sense that I could apply everything that I learned, but do much more, be much more innovative and much more sort of, you know, sort of transactional. <laughs> I think so. At that point, I, I decided to give that a try. And I said to myself, look, you know, I don't lose anything by trying out. If it doesn't work, I can always go back to accounting. Right. Uh, that's always there because that's that's my core. And then I started banking. I loved what I did. I worked in India for three years. And then I thought I needed a much bigger sort of platform. You know, I, I wanted to do com more complicated transactions, more complicated deals. I wanted to do cross-border stuff. So I just want to have that. And then I also wanted to have the benefit of a Western education from that perspective. And so I decided to pack my bags, to come to the U.S., to get my MBA with an intent always to work on Wall Street. And what was that first opportunity on Wall Street after, uh, I believe you were in, uh, in Pittsburgh, right? Yes. So I went to school in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was fantastic. It was, it was really, really cold. Uh, it was cold. I mean, just just imagine I'd never seen, honestly, I'd never seen snow in my life, what? you know, personally. Like oh, I'd never man. touched snow. And then you throw me from that to <laughs> Pittsburgh. Mm. Um, and uh, and but I, I I think I I enjoyed my my term there. It, it's a great campus, it's a it's a fantastic college. My professors yeah. were great, loved it. Yeah. And, and then uh, in between, uh, I had an opportunity to summer in London. So I enjoyed two and a half months of glorious London summer. And then I came back to campus and decided to join Morgan Stanley. And uh, Morgan Stanley Capital Markets working on investment banking, private banking. What area did you decide to focus so on? So it was capital markets. So, so it, it, was, it was a big bit of both. I did fixed, uh, fixed income, you know, sort of bond issuances as well as I worked on the securitization side. Yep. So it was, it, was, it's, it was a bit of, you know, it was a bit leveraging on my past, yeah. but also it was doing many more, you know, sort of different transactions. Yeah. Along the way, you spent some time in banking and you also spent some time traveling back and forth between the United States and Europe. I understand that your husband's also in the energy sector. Is that right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> He's an oil engineer. <laughs> We never talk about who's on the right side. We never talk about who's on the right side. Yeah. Is, is he environmentally minded? Well, much more than I am. I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, I think this is, a, this is a pet joke, which is he's much more conscious about saving water. He's much more conscious about saving electricity. He keeps constantly reminding me that, uh, you know, I need to do a much better job of conserving the planet for my children, for my grandchildren, for my great-grandchildren. So super environmentally conscious husband. <laughs> That's awesome. Were you still working in banking uh, when you spent some time abroad with him? When he, I think if I recall, he transitioned to a, new, a different job for his oil uh, engineering work. That's right. That's right. He, he was sent uh, abroad uh, to the Middle East on, a, on an assignment uh, with the same employer, but a different assignment. And so I decided to take that opportunity to go and see how it was working in that part of the world. So I did uh, a three-year stint in the Middle East between Dubai and Doha, that's Qatar. And it was, it was really nice because this was back in, you know, when Lehman crashed and the crisis happened, the big crisis happened here uh, and the global markets were in turmoil. But it was super interesting because Middle East had a lot of dry powder and they had a lot of investment ambitions. And there wasn't, you know, uh, so much of the penetration of the Western banking as yet. And so it was fantastic just being able to, you know, sort of do deals, being able to uh, sort of, uh, it, it was, a, it's a very different approach of doing business there, which was, which was personally for me, it, is, it was a great learning opportunity. 
it's you know having those relationships with a different set of people from a different culture and so that was fantastic so that was a great stint and then we moved back to Houston having spent some time with you i see you as very much a global citizen given that you've lived in london in pittsburgh in india in the middle east now in in Houston, which itself is kind of a different country from Pittsburgh altogether. <laughs> uh, what do you think are some of the hallmarks as an executive of the global citizen style thinking? I think it's very important to have that perception that people are different. Mm. They have to be different. And that diversity is what contributes to the success of any company. You know, diversity brings innovation and diversity brings a certain discipline in decision making. And so I think um, I aspire every day to be you know, to sort of walk the talk. I truly believe that having worked in different countries, not only having worked in different countries, but having worked with people from different countries during each of these assignments and people from different professional, educational backgrounds, I think that has made me the person I am today, which is, uh, you know, I, I can, you know, I can empathize with people. I can empathize with situations. I can understand challenges. I can understand different perspectives. And that, that truly, truly, you know, um, is valuable. At some point, you saw an opportunity or you seized on an opportunity to move from traditional capital markets and banking to infrastructure, most notably your move away from a role as a director at HSBC into head of investments and M&A for EDP North America, where you now lead the region. I mean, this is 20, end of 2011, beginning of 2012, renewables were at best, just starting to grow. <laughs> I'd love to hear your perspective on whether the move from banking to infrastructure was a big leap for you. And how did you think about renewables and particularly your role in M&A as the evolution or natural evolution of your career? So, so when we moved back to Houston, I was sure that I did not want to do banking anymore. Not that I did not enjoy it. I think that's a supercharged atmosphere, but I really wanted to sort of be on the other side where I'm implementing those things. You know, obviously Houston being the energy hub, you know, that, you know, choices galore around, you know, different, different streams and different pockets. But I thought I should be in a company which, and then be in an industry more importantly, which is long-term, which is the future. Not that I had a crystal ball, but I, I wanted to be somewhere where, you know, the world was moving towards in terms of, you know, not only energy, but in, just in terms of the focus and infrastructure investment. And when I started thinking about renewables, um, obviously, I think it was just a coincidence that there was this opportunity for EDPR. I came and met. The people were super, super fantastic. And, you know, I didn't blink my eye. I think the transition for me from banking to infrastructure was... I think that was so much more smoother. The transition for me, the difficulty, I, I wouldn't say difficulty, but the challenge for me personally to adapt was a moving move from banking to corporate. It's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. And I knew that, you know, I was the new person coming in and it's, it's important that I adapt, I adjust to this entirely different environment because on one side, you're so actively pitching deals to client after client. You move from one deal to another but here you're living those deals. You're living that and you're doing it. Uh, you're implementing that and you're working with the same team year after year. And so it's very different uh, compared to, you know, working on a, just on a transactional basis. And so, uh, but, but looking back, Nico, I can tell you that I would not have had it any other way. I would not have had it any other way. I'd like for you to take a couple of minutes for those who are completely unfamiliar contextually with EDP as a business to set the stage for the next kind of phase of a conversation I want to have around how a company like EDP sort of sees the world. But could you give a quick explanation of EDP as you sort of moved into it in 2012? We don't necessarily need to discuss today because we'll get there by way of how you helped the company grow. So when I joined EDP, EDPR at that time, um, it was a growing and emerging onshore wind player predominantly. And wind energy, of course, you know, uh, in India, um, you know, growing up in India, wind is something which was, I would say it was still in its infancy. There were definitely wind farms in some pockets, you know, while I was growing up. But this big move to, um, you know, a, a European IPP here in the U.S., 
which was uh, trying to establish its big presence here and emerge as a market leader. To me, it was absolutely fascinating. At that time, when I joined the company, there were about 300 people. And this included people who were on the, on the field. We had close to three gigawatts of assets. And it was a fantastic time because uh, I knew it was a small team. It was a growing team. I knew the aspirations and the ambitions. I knew what we have achieved overseas, our standing, our dominance, particularly in Iberia, which is, you know, which is our base. And the company was trying to replicate that into the U.S. market and truly becoming global. And so just being part of that, the thought of just being part of something like that, and, you know, I could contribute to that growth and I could grow along with the company, that to me was super appealing. Sandhya, as I mentioned, 2012, the renewables industry is at, at best a young industry, if not nascent in many parts. Had you engaged in any renewables transactions prior to your time at EDP? No, no mm. renewable transactions at all. And wow. so... So, so for me, the biggest challenge, uh, I mean, I also already mentioned to you the challenge of moving from banking to in-house corporate. So that was there. But also I knew that I had to learn the sector. I had to understand the sort of lay of the land, you know, what drives value, how a project's getting built. Though I knew that, you know, I'm not in the development or the technical side. You need one cannot have a good picture unless you, you have that understanding of, and, and how the markets worked in the US, how, how were PPAs framed, how do offtakes work, and who are the major players, how do we operate. And so it was a beautiful 12 months, I would say, where I had to pick up. But I also knew that, you know, I did not have the time to learn. I had to just do and learn. And so <laughs> it, was, it was really fantastic. That actually brings up a good point because we're at a place where the industry is growing so quickly right now that we really, we need, we need recruitment as much as we need training. Absolutely. If you could speak to the folks that were bringing on Sandia in 2012, or said a different way, to your team right now, onboarding folks that maybe have no idea, similar to you, about yeah. renewables, what do you wish you'd known then that would have really helped you, that would have given you the, the basis that you needed quickly, two, three, six months of foundational learning? Like where, where would you advise your team to focus now? I think the industry is much more mature today. Right. I mean, we have so many resources you get on LinkedIn and the number of people who talk about things that are happening. It's not only innovation, but the projects that are getting built, issues around transmission, issues around offtake, the new structures that issues around financing. So there is so much of just absolute resources out there right now for all the young people who are coming into the industry to learn about the sector and to actually make an conscious choice. How do they, where do they want to do? What do they want to do within the sector, right? Which I believe probably was there, but much lesser scale and scope, you know, 10 years back when, when I started. And so I completely agree with you. I, I do think that today we talk a lot about domestic supply chain. I talk with equal fervor about domestic talent, which is required for the, you know, with the, for the industry, because as the industry grows, we really need that talent pool. And there are the resources and there are lots of us. I mean, like, for example, your podcast is a classic example of how people can hear stories about, you know, what's happening in the sector and the innovations and the players and the remarkable leaders that we have. And so it's much different today than it was from the time I, I definitely joined. Maybe we'll speak to those who might. This happens more often than you imagine. Those who might be listening to this and they're actually considering EDP. What do you think are the core skills that they would need to integrate into a company like EDPR at this point in time? I would more not talk more about skills. Yeah. I think I, uh, we look for attributes. Uh, so I would talk about curiosity. I would talk about passion. I would talk about commitment to the sector, commitment to the purpose, and more importantly, belief in what we stand for. I think, you know, when people come in with that strong belief in our strategy, with a belief in our vision and what we are doing on the ground, Skill sets, we all can learn. I learned, everyone can learn. <laughs> so I, I do think, but the most important thing is people need to come with the right attributes and attitude. I love the redirection to think about this, not from a skill sets compared with attributes perspective. I haven't, uh, haven't, haven't looked at it from that angle and I really appreciate that redirection. The company as a global player with global assets working in multiple markets and more importantly with capital markets and your own funds has to think a lot about M&A. And I'm curious, some of the things that for you were fundamental learning around M&A, given that that was your, your charge coming in, 
And I'd like to ask a question that I, I believe is going to be sort of fundamental in our understanding of this for you to define for us. What is asset rotation? I had not heard of it until I first met with you. <laughs> uh, so could you explain to me in simple terms what asset rotation means? Sure. So it is simply, uh, people call it asset rotation. Some people may call it divestment. So what effectively happens is once you take a project to a certain milestone, you bring in equity partners into the project. And they can come at different stakes. They can own a minority. They can own a majority. But really, you're recycling capital. So you're divesting stakes in the project, divesting your shares in the project and bringing in a new partner. And that, to, for EDPR, you know, back in 2012 when I joined, in fact, that was my first transaction with a company. And I was uh, actually mandated to do that. And it was, it was fascinating because the industry was so small at that time. The number of investors who were actually looking at renewables was, the universe was so small. Today, uh, it is part of our core business pillar. So it's effectively you're recycling capital, you're raising capital by selling stakes mm. directly in the assets. Yeah. And then you're using that capital to grow further, to put more megawatts you know, back into the ground. I don't want to assume that anyone listening to this has the core sort of market understanding or capital markets understanding that you do. So I hope that you'll appreciate the, the yeah. level of question asking that I'm engaging in here. But how... Does something like asset rotation as a practice, I can understand the concept now, how does that practice yield the kind of successful growth that a company like EDP has experienced or yeah. EPR has experienced yeah. over the last decade with, with you as a part of the team and helping lead the global strategy? Sure. I, I think uh, as a strategy, it's really self-financing. So effectively, imagine you had, imagine you have $100 and with $100, you can do you can buy a basket of goodies. Now, you're going to sell 80% of that basket to someone else, and you're going to raise an additional $100, $150. Now, with that additional $150, you're going to buy one and a half more baskets. Again, you're going to sell part of that basket and raise $200, and with that $200, you can buy now two more baskets of goodies. So effectively, what happens is it enables you to grow at a magnitude which you would have never been able to do with a certain finite amount of capital. So one is it definitely helps in, you know, accelerating the growth, growing at a much faster pace and a much bigger scale. So that's number one. Number two, it also helps in crystallizing value. So when you have actually gone through the process of identifying a location, developing an asset and constructing and taking all of that risk, and then you're bringing in an equity partner, the partner is giving you a premium for having all done all of that work. And so you are crystallizing that value because that premium or what we call as gains is directly going into your financial statements. So on one side, it helps you grow at a magnitude which you would have never been able to do. And you can grow at a much faster pace than you would have done with that finite amount of capital. On the other hand, you're crystallizing the value and, you know, moving it to your financial statements. Hey, Sunshine, clouds got you down? It doesn't have to be that way. Every stakeholder in a solar project needs quality solar data to reduce risk and optimize performance. And nobody does data better than our friends at Solar Anywhere. Their data and services are the go-to choice for developers. To learn more, go to mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. That's mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. And hey, on October 11th, we're replaying a fascinating discussion on how solar data is the industry's best-kept secret to ensuring all days are brilliant days for solar plant developers and operators, where I got a chance to interview none other than the CEO of Clean Power Research, Jeff Ressler. Hope you'll tune in. In the meantime, go check them out, mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. 
Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Sandia. You have grown in leadership at ADPR at what I would consider to be a consistent and potentially accelerated pace. Was there a potential moment where you reflect back and go, oh, this is the inflection point. This is where my career took a big step forward. Sure. With ADPR, definitely it was in 2017. Because the first five years I was running M&A for North America, that's US, Canada, and Mexico. And in 2017, I had the opportunity to lead that function for the group. So today we are present in 26 different countries. And so that gave me the opportunity to work with, with my colleagues in different countries, opportunity to you know, frame the strategy of a company much more broadly than North America alone, enter into new markets, which we did during that time, understand regulations in Europe and you know all of that. And so to me, one, it enabled me to professionally take everything, my experience, to a much different, you know, level. And number two, I was super thankful for that opportunity that the company gave me because I was still based in Houston. And I was running M&A for a European company. And so that was uh, a leap of faith by the company. And I'm super thankful that I I think, you you know, for that opportunity that I got. In that opportunity, you achieved a number of firsts. Would you talk about some of those with us? I think um, rather than any specific one, I, I would just generalize it saying that, you know, during that phase from 2017 to 2021, when I when I led the group, um, we did, uh, you know, the kind of scale of asset rotation, which was five times more than what we did the previous four years. And so that, that was a different, different scale. Mm. Of course, as a company, we were also growing many, many more megawatts. We were growing multiple times of what we did before. Uh, we also enter, entered into, you know, LATAM in a big way. And so we entered into markets like Chile, Colombia. We were also, we also entered into new geographies in, in Europe. So, so definitely entering into new markets, but also the scale and size of, of the transactions that we were doing. And partly, uh, primarily because, you know, the company's aspirations for those years were much different, were a much, you know, much different magnitude and scale than what we had done before. And so, to me, that was fantastic. And more importantly for me, it was also having a global team. It was having a global team and being able to work, you know, with people across different time zones on an everyday basis. And so all of that, I think, you know, makes you, uh, you know, it, it brings a lot of learning and thought process into everything that you do. Over the course of the decade, as I mentioned, you progressively achieved roles that encompass what now is the effectively the the head of region, the CEO role for North America. When you think back over that decade of experience in renewables, in MA, asset rotation, even team building, consensus and strategy building, were there any particular skills? If you think from the perspective of leadership over in Iberia, watching you, what were the skills they were watching develop and cultivate into the person that would be ready for a CEO role? Okay, this is going to be my perspective. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot predict what the CEO, of what's the leadership thinks. But, but I, I think a few things. One is ability to connect the dots mm-hmm. because it's super important uh, to have the big picture as you move up the chain. When you're learning, when you're starting your career, you're you're always benchmarked. You're always sort of evaluated based on yeah. how detail oriented you are. As you move up the chain. It's assumed that you're already detail-oriented. And so that, it's that ability then to take a step back and look at the big picture and so lay out the strategy. So that's that's number one. Number two, uh, I think I, I do have the ability to work with everyone, which is super important. You know, as I, as I mentioned, I, I think that was part of my upbringing, part of my growing up. Yeah. 
that ability to empathize uh, as well as understand and be patient, you know, and to sort of, uh, you know, get a hold of, you know, what other people are thinking. Um, and, uh, and more importantly, to, you know, sort of collaborate and bring consensus, which is super important. I think that's, that's I mean, personally, when I, when I look at leaders for whom I would have liked to work at any point in my career, it's those people who would bring all people together in a line. And so I would like to be the one. So probably that's that's what they noticed. And and also then I have a can-do attitude. I never give up. I never give up. I persevere. And that's super important because challenges keep coming every day, different challenges, and we cannot wither. And so, you know, we have to build and rebuild, build and rebuild. And so I, I persevere. So probably that. I think that one thing that stuck out to me is I was poking around, kind of trying to understand how EDPR is positioning itself as a talent pool, as polycultural, sort of a global business, not sort of, but definitely a global business. I found a campaign called hashtag rebels for change, rebels for change. What does that mean to you? I mean, the campaign that was started was essentially to encourage girls, to encourage women, and to say that STEM is not taboo to them. Girls can grasp, can, you know, so in, you know, they can do well in any career. And so engineering and science does not have to be treated as male dominated. And so that's, that's the campaign that we launched around Rebels for Change. To me, when I think about Rebels for Change, of course, I am completely aligned with our strategy. But for me, when you think about Rebels for Change, the world runs on change. I mean, we are today what we are because somebody thought of making some changes along the way. And I think when you think about Rebels for Change, to me, it's about our ability to think beyond the status quo, our ability to constantly say that status quo is great, but there is something better that we can always do. So it is a constant improvisation and, and that pursuit, you know, that, that absolute, you know, sort of commitment and diehard passion to bring about change, to bring about change for a good. And so to me, that is a rebel. And that could be a small change, a big change, could be anything. I love it. I would encourage folks to go watch some of the videos that you all have posted on YouTube. And I may steal the (laughs) Rebels for Change. I may borrow or or co-op the Rebels for Change hashtag. (laughs) I think it's really, really smart. I'd like to ask about sort of the current status of the industry. And uh, we'll bring it home to your time at Carnegie Mellon. You were recently at the dedication ceremony for our friends Next Tracker and their Pittsburgh plant announcement. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, we could talk if you want about the Inflation Reduction Act, but I particularly want to hear your thoughts around the reshoring of steel and other components uh, and what it means for U.S. renewable energy. So, so when you think about U.S. renewables, the pace at which we all developers, we all want it to grow it's super important in the world that we are living in today that we have security as it relies to supply chain. That availability of equipment should not be a bottleneck ever in our pursuit towards energy independence and energy security, period. Okay, that to me is yeah. the, the biggest thing. And so developing a domestic chain in the US, of course, it's high time we did that. I'm mm-hmm. happy that the IRA is actually helping us. Inflation Reduction Act is actually going to help us through various incentives in order to sort of accentuate what the manufacturing community was planning to do in terms mm-hmm. of laying out new production lines, making new investments, so that they have the certainty that there will be a demand to which they can actually cater to. And so to me, it is energy independence, energy security going, goes hand in hand with having that local domestic supply chain. We talked about Supply chain is not only about equipment. To me, it's also about domestic talent pool. So everything so that we can be sort of, to a large extent, we can be self-sufficient. So I was super happy when Dan Sugar, he invited me to, you know, go for the inauguration at Pittsburgh. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic uh, initiative that uh, that Next Tracker is doing by launching so many production lines all across the U.S. and contributing to the the pace at which the industry should be growing. And today we are a 30 gigawatt industry when you think about solar and wind in the US. And with the act, if we are moving from 30 to 60 annually, then we better have it. We better get to the domestic supply chain. Geopolitically, do you see this as, as a global citizen, as, an, as a leader in an organization that has operations in more than 20 countries? 
is this a trend we should expect to see in other regions? What would you have? What, what do you think about Latin America, um, Middle East, Africa? I think so. I think so. There is a fine balance between globalization and independence, national independence, and, and that be any country. We are talking about, you know, unprecedented times when we are talking about huge fuel costs, when we are talking about huge issues as it relates to, for example, the lockdowns that we suffered. So industries, to a large extent, they must be self-sufficient. So I completely think that today where most of the production of our equipment that we need for our industry is coming from Asia and to some extent from Europe, if it is, you know, depending upon if it's solar or wind, I think, you know, in-housing within, you know, you know, within nations, and of course, in the case of Europe, I would, you know, call it within the continent, I think that is, you know, that is going to be increasingly the flavor of the coming years as nations, because, because that doesn't in any way, shape or form contradict, or it doesn't hamper all of our desire to have global trade, all of our desire to do that. This is about ensuring that you have the availability in order to satisfy, in order to cater to all of our collective climate goals, period, right? And so that should not, you know, that should not get impacted by short-term hiccups. Fully agree. It's, it's very interesting that the globalization experiment of the last 30 plus years has really come to that, um, that to match sort of the max stretching point of that rubber band where, yeah. where we yeah. now have to find the right balance because the scales were tipped too far in one direction. We see right now in the United States, uh, headlines in PV magazine and other journals saying product is stuck in the port. Manufacturing lines are shut down in Asia where we supposedly are going to get, get product from. Uh, things yeah, in module manufacturing, things like the front sheet and the back sheet that quickly deteriorate if they're not put into manufacturing or sitting idle, waiting for sort of markets to, to sort of stabilize. And we have a global shipping crisis. So it's, it's really interesting. And I, I suspected that was your answer. I'm glad to hear from your perspective, sort of the underlying philosophy behind it. Can't say I'm surprised. I definitely agree with you. And uh, we'll point folks to this conversation that believe that we're not going to see some sort of like, you know, domestication, as it were, of our, of our, both our workforce and our manufacturing. Let's pivot a bit to ancillary products, not just photovoltaics and wind, but our goal as an industry is to see renewables. The energy transition is transitioning away from fossil fuels. And study after study has suggested that we need energy storage and we need other parallel industries to thrive. Could you talk a bit about EDPR's position around battery storage in particular, how it, in, how it integrates into the mix? I know you all have a, a one gigawatt initiative through 2026. Perhaps you could talk about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in the US, we are uh, doing a lot of initiatives around storage. We are building a lot of co-located projects. And what that means is projects where both solar and storage or batteries coexist. That is becoming increasingly a theme of the day simply because of the fact that you're able to capture or you're able to sort of conserve the energy that is produced during when you have solar that is during the day and the battery can be discharged in the night. And so that is simple, you know, simple logic of making sure that, you know, we are able to capture the resources when it's available by nature, store it and use it when we want it. What is shifting now with the IRA is that we also are getting a standalone ITC, which is a standalone subsidy for storage, which does not coexist with solar or wind. So for standalone storage, we have an ITC. That is definitely going to increase our aspirations, our ambitions, as it is, I'm sure, with the industry as a whole. And so, you know, definitely we, we do have a significant uh, sort of storage commitments through 2025, which we will be continuing to do. And, you know, just, you know, we are very optimistic. We are buoyed by the, you know, by the IRA now. And so that's definitely going to help us look at this target and say that we can do more. You know, there is, uh, there is much more to do. EDPR is more than just utility scale assets. In fact, you guys have a large portfolio of community solar and distributed rooftop assets. Is there a mix of different types of energy storage that you see as becoming pervasive for each segment? I mean, I wonder in particular if you might have some thoughts on the kind of storage you see being utilized in C&I and community solar as being different from utility scale? Uh, yes, we do have a distribution, uh, distributed generation platform and, uh, you know, sort of uh, making uh, and making significant inroads into different markets. Uh, and we are 
becoming a dominant player in that sector. But as it relates to storage, what distinguishes is more about the technology, more than whether it's distributed or whether it's centralized or utility scale. Um, in the US and globally, right now, what is prevalent is lithium-ion-based battery. Definitely, there are pockets which are working on nickel and there are then flow batteries, but those technologies have not developed to a point where it is economical. So today what we're doing is lithium-ion, and that's the same, whether it is we are using it for utility scale or whether we are using it for sort of decentralized or distributed generation. Sandhya, could you speak to a bit of the right mix of uh, energy storage technology or, you know, the amount of the duration and ability to inject back into the grid? Yeah, I think it depends on a case-by-case -case basis. What we are doing uh, predominantly is two-hour or four-hour systems. And so that is basically two-hour means you can, you know, you can basically conserve enough to be discharged over a two-hour period of time. As we are seeing and we are the industry, of course, when the technology develops, we will be looking definitely at, you know, mass utilization of mega, mega packs, which is eight, you know, eight yeah. hour storage. And I'm sure that we will keep, you know, to ensure that there is round the clock effect. End of the day, all of our ambition is the same. There should be 24 by 7 mm. availability in one shape or form of renewables. So you capture wind during some part of the day, solar during some part of the day, and then you're storing it so that when you don't either have wind or solar, you can actually you yeah. discharge what has been stored. And so we should be seeing over time mega packs. But right now, what we are doing is the two-hour or the four-hour system. And that depends upon site. It depends upon the requirements of the customer. It's a balance. Sandhya, I recently did a series on green hydrogen. So I definitely am always looking out when I see uh, companies like EDPR make announcements around hydrogen. I'd love to hear at least your perspective from North America. What role does hydrogen play, play in the energy transition? Absolutely. I think it is going to be, you know, if someone had a crystal ball three years back, probably they would have predicted, you know, hydrogen as the next uh, sort of game changer. So at EDPR, definitely we have, um, you know, we have launched a separate uh, unit which is uh, focused on hydrogen across the group. So in all the markets that we are present in, US is definitely a big market. And um, again, the coexistence of renewables and green hydrogen is fantastic, right? Because what is required in order to make hydrogen is essentially an electrolyzer and you need electricity and you need water, right? And so for, to make green hydrogen, you need green electricity. So the fact that we have renewable assets here in the US, it's a natural marriage that we can use that electricity in order to, you know, sort of generate in order to produce hydrogen. With the IRA, now we are looking at a fantastic subsidy, which is there in no other part of the world. And so this fills me with optimism that in the United States, we can manufacture hydrogen cheaper than any other part of the world, green hydrogen. Now we obviously, the, the trick, the magic puzzle is how do we transport it? you know, and how do we uh, sort of ensure that, you know, from the point of generation, we are able to transmit to where it is actually required, where it will be consumed. But uh, hydrogen definitely is a big part of uh, the play that we have for the U.S. as well as elsewhere in the globe. I hear that one of the current challenges is transportation. Do you see anything else in terms of just commercialization, uh, the ability to get to the point where we have cost-effective uh, electrolysis? Are there any other current challenges to hydrogen? Yes, because end of the day, it's a new technology. The mm -hmm. technology needs to be proven. The technology needs to be proven, proven. And when I mean proven, proven at scale, right? And the ability for us in order to manufacture at the scale that is required. I think, you know, the economics sooner or later, it will get there, especially with the uh, subsidies uh, where, you know, almost it's $3 uh, per kilogram. That is, that's the kind of subsidies that we are talking about with that. We should definitely be able to, you know, um, you know, uh, sort of work around the economics. But as it relates to technology itself, is a matter of time when it can be proven that this can be manufactured in scale, and you know that will pick the interest for sure. And you know, consumers will eventually say that this is the right thing to do, and economically also, this is the right way to do it. I love when I get a chance to hear you speak. I've seen you uh, on a few YouTube videos, folks that have interviewed you. I think that you deserve a bigger stage. You were given a chance on one of the biggest stages for <laughs> thinkers to think about big things and, and transmit their thoughts to others, uh, namely the TED stage. I'd love to hear, what would your TED talk be about? My TED talk, uh, my personal 
preference would be I would talk about servant leadership. I know that there are quite a lot of TED Talks where people talk about leadership styles, but I think servant leadership and what that means in the renewable sector, probably that would be my TED Talk. Would you care to elaborate on maybe one of the points that you'd bring up? Sure. You know, the last 10 years, what has taught me is this is an industry where people are selfless in transmitting knowledge, in transferring knowledge. And when I think about leadership, you know, there is no title required for leadership. It's about making sure that you're passing the wealth of knowledge that you have and making sure that the next generation is ready to grasp that. And so when I look at the selfless leaders and pioneers who have started the sort of on around renewable energy back in the 80s and the 90s and, you know, early 2000s and where we are today, of course, this industry is because of who they are and what they are and they have been selfless. And today, so many CEOs, so many executives, so many of us are talking and, you know, so now we are reaping the benefits of all of that. And, and I think it is, it is, it's important to pay it forward so that the industry can continue with its core ethics. It can continue with its ethos and it can continue with its philosophy. As you think about the influences over your career in the form of mentors and teachers, what lessons or takeaways from the, those early years do you now pass along as you mentor and train others in, in leadership? I think, uh, you know, a lot of what I talked about servant leadership is what I have seen in others, in my mentors, because it's very important to enable others to succeed. Life is not about our success alone. It's about collective success. It's about making sure that we create the right atmosphere, the right setup so that others can succeed. So that's definitely number one. Number two is definitely all my mentors have aspired for the sky and the moon. And, and I know that they have, it's not only being aspirational, it's backing that with putting everything, your heart and soul into it behind it. And that's super important. And so, you know, to any young person, I would say the same thing. Aspire as much as you want, but back it up. Back it up with that conviction in your aspirations. And there is only one you, and you're very unique, and we are all very unique. And I think my mentors taught me the same thing, and I, I'm, I'm kind of reminded. In fact, uh, you know, well, one of those statements which says that accept yourself the way you are and revel in it. And I think all my mentors told me that be unique, you know, do not try to emulate anyone, be your own self, have your own leadership style, you know, have your own sort of approach to things, have your own way of solving problems, be unique. And I I would tell the same thing to anyone. I believe that leaders are readers. And I personally ascribe to uh, reading in the form of listening to audiobooks, lest lest folks think that that's not a form of reading. Are there any particular writings that have influenced your career or your personal life in a way that, that you pass along to others? Um, many, many. I, I cannot think of one, uh, one uh, single one. In fact, I just still mentioned one to you. Uh, Tuesday. So that's, um, yes, Mitch Album. I love his books, whether it's Tuesdays with Maurice or uh, One More Day. I mean, it's uh, for, for so, mm-hmm. so it's like, I, I think, and then, you know, Coming from India, I read a lot of sort of British authors. I mean, the influence of British authors and Indian sort of literature Mm -hmm. is heavy. So uh, not sure whether, you know, um, listeners are familiar with uh, British authors, but I loved reading Ruskin Bond when I was a kid. It was just the overall, it's the holistic approach to life, which is, it's super simple. Life is super simple. We don't have to complicate it. And I think, you know, each book of Ruskin Bonds, it, Mm. it sort of, as that core sort of value proposition. And so yeah. um, I, I think along the way, I've read so many books and I wouldn't say one particular saying or one particular this thing, which has impacted me one way or the other. I think, you know, I normally I visualize books. When I read it, I visualize it. I'm a slow reader, uh-huh. so I have to visualize every scene, yeah. what is going on. <laughs> but, uh, but I try to sort of, you know, take it, take it all. If there were one of the Ruskin Bond books that I wanted to read with, uh, with my children. Oh yeah. Ruskin Bond has written almost 60 books. For yeah. Kids. Is, is there anything that stands out? I see, like I'm looking at the covers, the cherry tree, um, the night train, the room night train is really good. That is really is good. It? I think that is a one where I think that is a one where he writes about, uh, his travels. I mean, he was, uh, it, this was British India. So this was before independence. 
and in the hill stations of Dalhousie and Darjeeling. And, you know, it, it's, it's really good, those ones. And some of those, even his autobiography, you know, I think, um, yes, there are many, many short stories of his. I think all lovely reads for the for children because it's it's about his growing up, about how he grew up in the hills and how life was there. And he's one of those authors, even after independence, he did not leave India because he just loved it. He just loved being there. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to read this one, uh, The Night Train t- at Deoli and and other stories. It is a very good book. It's a, it's a station where he stops at the station and then what happens there. So it's, it's a very good book. Fascinating. Is there a particular habit or practice in, that has given you great impact or leverage in your life? Something that has given routine and meant a, a great deal in terms of uh, propelling you forward? I, I wake up really early. Mm-hmm. I wake up super early. And that really actually, early, I don't know whether it's, yeah, kind of, I, I'm up between three and four, depending no upon way. the day. No, it's not a good thing. I'm not going to advocate that to people. So, but I, I don't sleep a lot. Are you like a go to bed at midnight, get up at 3 a.m. person? No, Sunday? I go to bed between 10, 30 and 11. So, okay. and I'm so like five, five six hours a night. Yes, yeah. I do get my sleep. Yeah. Uh, but, but that actually helps me because it's quiet. I'm all mm. to myself and it helps yeah. you getting organized for the day and mm-hmm. sort of, uh, yeah. And, and, and second thing as a habit, and a lot of people absolutely hate me for that. I'm pretty sure if there are my, my colleagues, probably they hate me for that because I'm sort of, you know, I, I'm always on my phone. I always, mm. I'm like, okay, what is this? What is that? Doesn't mean to say that I'm expecting people to sort of respond to yeah. me, but I do like to get my thoughts out. So if you're asking yeah. for a habit, I like to get my thoughts out. Yeah. And you get them out in what format? Email or if I'm calling people or text or WhatsApp, I'm like pretty, pretty on it. So if, if I have a phone, that's all that I need. <laughs> to function. Gotcha. Sandhya, is there a particular place uh, that you like to be found? Like if someone wants to reach out to you or they want to just follow you, is it LinkedIn or is there place, other places that you frequent? Absolutely. LinkedIn. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. I'm not there on Twitter or on Instagram and don't mm-hmm. Don't judge me by that uh, no, or for no. that, <laughs> but LinkedIn, absolutely. <laughs> and, and normally I'm very, I'm fairly responsive. So yeah. that's a great place. I wonder, uh, as we bring it to a close here, I've got a couple of questions more for you. The first is how, if any, can the Sungast audience help? You've got thousands of listeners here who consider themselves solar and solar warriors and climate champions. How can we help? Spread the message of everything that we are doing. Help us with your ideas. If you have any that you think, you know, someone like us should be evaluating. Bring your thoughts around projects. Bring your thoughts about changes that we can. I mean, goes back to your comment, Nico, about rebels for change. We are all rebels for change. And together, I think it's a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic mm. setup where all of us can come together and revolutionize much more than what we are doing today. So your thoughts, your ideas. And I'll, I'll throw out there, use hashtag rebels for change. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's end with what we always have as our final question. I call it our bold prediction. What do you believe is the next huge problem we've got to solve in the clean energy sector that's holding us back? What's in your crystal ball? Transportation, which is we now we talk about EVs, but we need to really talk about mass transport. And particularly in a country like the US, in large vast countries, it's about how do we economically efficiently link people, especially in countries which where, you know, the density is sort of spread out, the population is spread out. And that definitely will be a game changer if you're able to sort of, you know, sort of focus on mass transport, ensuring it's a mindset change. It's a mindset change that where people, you know, switch to mass transport. And so to me, definitely that is a game changer. I couldn't agree with you more. And as we move to an increasingly electrified, renewable powered world, we open up the ability for uh, mass transit to be more efficient, more effective in ways that it has been, for, has been for years in other parts of the world and, and will increasingly be here in North America. Absolutely. Uh, just, just to end, I think the other day I was reading about panels on top of buses. Fantastic. Mm. So oh, yeah. you're solving mass transport and then you're having solar powered vehicles. And so... Uh, I think, I think that'll be the next one. Sandhya Ganapati is CEO of EDPR North America. Sandhya, it has been truly a pleasure to have you here. I want to say a shout out and a thanks as well to Tom Wyrick for helping coordinate the effort 
and to your incredible team who helped manage uh, what is an, is a, an impactful uh, but very busy schedule for you. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And it was absolutely lovely talking to Nico. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation. And thank you, Sandhya and the EDPR team for being our expert guides in this discussion around global infrastructure development and investment. It is truly fascinating to speak with someone with the breadth and depth of experience Sandhya brings to the table. What did you learn, Solar Warriors? Did you come away feeling inspired? Do you want to go work for EDPR? I'm certain they are looking for you and your friends. So be sure you go uh, check out hashtag rebels for change and check out the EDPR team and their website so that you can see how at least they are making an impact on the world. Since I know you're going to be hopping online to do that, I'd love it if you'd share this episode with somebody else that you think would benefit from the episode. My favorite place to do that is on LinkedIn. And I imagine while you go share, you're also going to jump on and try to connect with Sandia on LinkedIn as well. She and I are eager to hear how this episode resonated with you. Who do you think needs to hear it today? I hope you'll tune in again next week where we'll meet you twice a week on Tuesday for tactical, practical advice and on Thursday for longer form narrative and executive insights like you've heard today. And of course, if you're eager to keep learning in between episodes, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other 500 plus discussions, along with the social media links for Sandia and her team, the book recommendations and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Just click on the episodes tab. Oh, and one more thing. Since I can tell that you are in a good mood and you're going to go online and do all these fantastic things, we just like to give you a reminder that the single kindest thing you could do is to leave us a five-star rating and enthusiastic review on Apple or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. In fact, if you only did one thing, it would be this one. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. It takes about three minutes and I'm forever grateful for you considering this generosity and paying it forward to others who can help find the podcast because you went to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and left your glowing review of the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help bring this content to you for free so that you can learn more about the clean energy sector. You can learn more about those sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you could learn ways to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they have. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.